Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse -verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul has begun his second letter to them, his second epistle to them. We don't have the previous letter. It is lost to history somewhere, but we do have this second letter, which we refer to as 1 Corinthians. But he almost immediately launched into the fact that there were divisions within the church. And he wanted to quell these divisions. And honestly, thinking about it, I understand the divisions. It's one thing to have a favorite preacher. We all have our favorite preachers. Everybody's got a favorite they prefer to listen to. But apparently what was going on in Corinth was well beyond that. It was not just I have a favorite. It was I've been converted by, I am wholly committed to, and it became factions within the church. Now, when I say the church, I want your mind to kind of drift back 2,000 years, which us really old guys can do. <laughs> I want you to think about how the original church began. Within a city like Corinth, there was a body that was known as the church. There weren't many different churches and different denominations and different groups and subgroups and sects. There was the church. And so within the church, Paul wanted there to be unity. And right away, there was schisms. There were factions within the church because they preferred one person over another person to the point of actually thinking of themselves as being the better group because they were of Apollos or they were of Paul or they were of Cephas. Now, Paul was the first to plant the church there in Corinth. And so I can see people who originally heard Paul and were converted by Paul. I could see them having a great deal of love and affection for Paul. And that's natural. But then Apollos came along later. Paul sent Apollos to Corinth after Apollos had encountered him and Priscilla and Aquila, and they taught him the gospel more perfectly. Well, then he came to Corinth, and every indication is that he was a really good speaker. Now, before we get to the end of 1 Corinthians, we're going to find out that Paul was not a particularly good speaker. The way that Paul looked, the way he presented himself was kind of weak. And the way that he spoke was kind of simple compared to somebody like Apollos, who was a great orator, apparently. And so I can see Apollos coming and converting other folk and convincing other folk. And then people say, well, I'm with that guy. He's saying the same stuff that Paul said, but he says it a whole lot better. And I was converted under Apollos' ministry, so you all can be of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And then there's the reference, and some say, I'm of Cephas, which is interesting because historically, biblically, we don't have any record of Peter coming to Corinth, but apparently he did. We know that he was in Galatia. We know that he was in Jerusalem. We know that he was in Babylon. He said so. We don't have any historic evidence that he was ever in Rome, despite what the church at Rome might tell you. But we know that Peter wandered outside of Jerusalem and went into Gentile areas. So it's certainly not beyond the pale that Peter could actually be here. But now Peter comes. He's a stalwart of the church. Unlike Apollos, unlike Paul, he's actually seen Jesus. He's actually touched Jesus. He's actually eaten with Jesus. He's one of the, the original 12 apostles, and he shows up, and, and he starts preaching Jesus. Well, I can imagine that people would say, I'm with that guy. He was with Jesus, unlike Paul, unlike Apollos. I'm with that guy. And so factions developed within the church, and Paul had to write and say, look, guys, 
when it comes right down to it, even though you may have your favorites, even though you may have a particular history with these people, they're all just men and none of them died for you. The very fact that they were with you means they didn't die and they could not die for you. Their deaths were individual deaths, but they did not and could not die for humanity. And so he wanted the church to be centered on Jesus. He wanted to bring it back to the simplicity of Jesus and Jesus' death. That Jesus died for humanity, that he died for his elect individuals, that he died for those people that God had given to him, and that his death satisfied God in such a way that those people were now eternally secure because of the death of that person, that one, that Jesus. And that separates him from all other people. I like Jamie a lot. I just picked on you because you're up in the front row. But you know what Jamie can't do? Can't save me. No matter how hard he tries, no matter what he does, even if he said, I'll give my life for you, I could still be heathen. Only Jesus ever died and his death satisfied God. Only Jesus ever died and paid the death penalty that so pleased, so satisfied God that God actually raised him from the dead again just to show that God had actually accepted the finished sacrifice. Only the blood of Christ was ever considered the blood of a covenant. So important was the death of Christ that all of human history was changed by that singular event. Even our calendars were changed. We talk about B.C. and A.D. Do you know what A.D. stands for? Anno Domini. It's the year of our Lord. All of human history was determined by which year is this since the Lord died. I mean, that's the effect that it's had on human history. Religions have come and gone on planet Earth, but one religion, Christianity, has stuck around because of the permanence, because of the unequaled, unparalleled, finished work of that one man on one cross, one time, satisfying God. And so Paul wanted the Corinthians to concentrate on that, because if they all believed that in unison if they all understood that collectively as a church, then there wouldn't be any more arguments about, well, I'm of this guy, and I'm of that guy, I'm of that guy. They would all have to agree, I'm of Jesus. I'm of Christ. And so that's the first argument that he's going to encounter here. Now, in order to make that argument, and in order to say that he's not the important one, he also points out that he did not baptize anybody. And then he says, wait, I can think of a couple. And yet, he at one point says, if there were others, I don't know. And so baptism, I said last week at the end of the week, baptism in the mind of Paul simply was not an absolute requirement for salvation. I'm going to show you this morning that Jesus, while he was on the planet, did not baptize. John even records that for us. It was important to John that he record that Jesus did not baptize. His disciples baptized, and he instructed his disciples to baptize, and I'm not in any way denigrating baptism. I think baptism, just like the Lord's Supper, these are ordinances that Christ left for the church, and they ought to be followed. But there are religions, there are traditions, there are theologies out there that say you have to be baptized for salvation. Like, for instance, the Church of Christ believes that salvation is through baptism. The problem with that is if Paul equally believed that salvation was a result of baptism, if Jesus equally believed that salvation was a result of baptism, then why would neither of them emphasize it? 
why would they both say, I don't baptize? Instead, they'd be bringing people into the kingdom and saying, get baptized right away. I'm here. I've converted you. I've told you the truth. I will baptize you. So that's the overview of what we've learned so far and where we're going to jump in to 1 Corinthians. You got it? You got the argument? We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name or by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, and that you are in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let's talk about judgment there. What Paul is talking about is not eternal judgment. In fact, later in this letter, in chapter 4, we might even look at it this morning. He takes the time to say, don't be judging people before Christ returns, because Christ is the one who knows everyone's heart, and he'll do the judging thing. It's not your job to go around judging people. So don't judge like that. What Paul is talking about here is to be of the same opinion or to be of the same judgment on matters within the church so that there is unity within the church. So be complete, be in the same mind, and be in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. Then he asked the question, has Christ been divided? That's the first essential question that you have to think about theologically to understand Paul's argument. The first question is, If the church itself has been divided into separate groups, Paul's group, Peter's group, Apollo's group, people who say, no, I'm just with Christ, well, then is Christ divided? Can Christ be divvied up? Can Christ be parceled out into sections? And the answer, of course, is no. Christ is one. The church is one. The spirit is one. And so, therefore, there ought to be unity, and the unity ought to center around, I'm of Christ, not I'm of anybody else. In fact, Paul is going to argue, we're all just servants. If you think, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, who are these guys? Who are these people? They are all just servants. One plants one waters, but it's always God who has to give the increase. And that makes God separate. That makes God able to do the things that human beings can't do. Here's what I'm talking about. Let's test this theory for a moment. Do we have any gardeners in the room? Do we have anybody who likes outdoor gardening? I see a hand being raised by a husband back there. I am not. I'm not an outdoorsy guy. I'm not a gardener. I, the garden by the side of my house, by the side door, a couple of years ago, I had it filled in with rocks. That's how outdoorsy I am. <laughs> not. But I know this. I know that if I take a seed and I stare at it and I say, grow, that I can't make it grow. If, if I've got a seed and I want a flower by tonight, I can't make that happen. No matter what I do, I can't affect how the seed grows. All I can do is put it in some dirt, water it, and wait. And then God goes about doing the thing that God has built into creation so that that seed eventually roots and sprouts and becomes a plant. But the only thing I did for it was plant it and water it. And that's Paul's essential argument. All any of us servants ever do is to plant and water, but then we recognize that there are things only God can do. Only the Spirit of God can convert a man. Only the Spirit of God can awaken a man to understanding the things of God. 
I can't stand in front of a heathen any more than I can stand in front of a seed. I can't stand in front of a heathen and yell, believe, until they do. All I can do is tell them the truth. I can plant and water. But it's God that has to give the increase. It's God who has to awaken them to the truth. So Paul argues Christ is not divided. There is one Christ, one spirit, one God, and it can't be parceled out. So has Christ been divided? No. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? What a good question. Because through the years, I have had several teachers in the gospel who I love very, very much and who I am very thankful to. I'm thankful to them for the time they've invested in me and for the teaching that they did. But none of them, not a one of them, just like I said about Jamie earlier, not a single one of them, when they died, and several have, none of them corrected me eternally. None of them made me secure with God eternally. And the Apostle Paul lived, and he preached Christ, and he died. By best tradition, he had his head chopped off under Nero. And when he died, you know who benefited from it? Him. That's about it. He went home. But everybody else, the whole rest of the church, nobody. Nobody in Corinth actually had their standing with God improved by the death of Paul. And so he says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, there were a couple of early baptisms. There was the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. There were the ceremonial washings that the priests went through. Most Jews went through those kinds of ceremonial washings so that they were ceremonially clean, so that they could do things like touch food or enter a temple, or if they had touched any dead thing or become impure in any way, they had to wash and then they had to wait. And so there were all these different baptisms. Apollos, we know that when we first met him, he knew the baptism of John, that baptism of repentance, but he had never been baptized the way Jesus instructed at the end of the book of Matthew when he said, go and baptize in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. So there were different types of, different kinds of baptism. But among those baptisms, there was none that were called the baptism of Paul. There were none where anybody could say, I was baptized into Paul. Now, some folks think that when you're baptized, you are baptized into a congregation or baptized into a denomination or baptized into a particular tradition. I don't know if I should tell this story. Better not. Okay, I won't. Don't awe me. I knew when I was baptized, I wasn't baptized into anything but Christ. And that's exactly right. That's the point I was going to make through an entirely different story. So thank you for saying that. Because our baptism is always a baptism into Christ. It's not into any particular man. It's not into any particular doctrine. It's not into any particular denomination. We are baptized in the name, in the authority of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So Paul could say, now you were not baptized into the name of Paul. And then he takes the time to say, I am so sure that you weren't baptized into my name. I don't even think I baptized anybody. He's making it very sure, very, very certain that people wouldn't say, I'm of Paul. Because by saying that, they would have to say, I'm of Paul, I've been baptized into Paul, I have the spirit of Paul, I follow Paul. And so he wanted to eliminate that kind of thinking. Now, by the way, let me point out that there are people, and the Bible even talks about them, who will preach the gospel for the sheer sake of collecting followers. They want to have people following them. They want to be the high and mighty. They want to be the important. 
and that is the inverse of the Pauline way of thinking. The Pauline way of thinking is Paul has a job to do, he's a servant, he's going to do the job faithfully, and then he's going to die, and yet Christ is still alive, and yet Christ is still building his church. And so all baptisms have to be into the name of Christ. So verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Okay, you can name two. That would be my group. So Paul is being very clear, very precise in what he's choosing to say in order to point out that anybody that is declaring, I'm of Paul, they're declaring the wrong thing. They must be followers of Christ alone, Christ uniquely, Christ distinctly, and Christ solely. So I thank my God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. We're going to find out in a moment that he also baptized the household of Stephanus. So he's got a small group that he baptized But he did not go around baptizing because he saw his job, he saw his position, he saw his calling as preaching the gospel. And his job was not necessarily baptizing. There were other people whose job it was to do the baptizing. But it was his job to be an evangelist, to tell the evangel, to tell the good news which is why he was constantly moving, constantly traveling, constantly going from city to city, establishing churches, because that's what his calling was. Verse 15, the reason that I baptized none of you is so that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Don't even think it. Don't even pretend that I'm the way you're saved. Don't think that I'm the method or I'm the pathway to God. There is one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's not Paul. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I kind of think that's a funny phrase. I enjoy that phrase because... Paul put such a secondary value on his baptism that he has to kind of scratch his head and say, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I think if you held me against a wall and said, how many people have you baptized? I don't know if I could tell you the number, but I could probably tell you the names. I could list the people that I've ever baptized. And Paul said, I can't even think of any. I know there was this Crispus Gaius. I know the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, not sure. That's how little he wanted to be thought of as the method, as the pathway to God. Somebody look up John 4.2 for me for just a moment. That's the verse that I mentioned just a moment ago and said that Jesus also never baptized anybody. His apostles did. His disciples did. But he himself did not baptize anybody. Somebody got John 4, 2 there? I see you flipping through your iPad. Go ahead and read it. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So there we have the statement from John that Jesus wasn't out there baptizing. His disciples were baptizing, but he was not. And so I just say again, and I'm going to make this as clear as I can possibly make it, For all the people who say that baptism is an absolute essential for salvation, I would have to say, well, it can't be if Jesus and Paul did not baptize. However, Jesus, who is our authority, and hear me clearly on this, Jesus, who is the head of the church, did tell his disciples to baptize, but to baptize in his name and the name of the Spirit and the name of the Father, and that's how we do our baptisms. So we do follow what our master has told us to do, but I don't believe that it's essential. As long as there's a thief on the cross who was told by Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise, and that man could not jump down and be baptized. As long as that exists, I can name at least one person who was absolutely saved, guaranteed it from the mouth of Christ, and did not encounter baptism 
And so theologically, and that's what I'm really harping about, theologically you can't say, if you're going to join my church, if you're going to join my congregation, if you're going to join my denomination, if you're going to join our particular theology, then you have to be baptized to be saved. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that would support that. But being baptized into Christ, making the public proclamation that you belong to him, that you are aligning yourself with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, that is an ordinance that was given to the church, and we certainly ought to be doing it. You got me? Yes. Because somebody will take that phrase, put it on the internet, and they'll say, Jim McClarty doesn't believe in baptism, so I'm trying to be as clear as I can be. Now, I did not baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Here's why. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. It's interesting that Paul understood his job, his calling, so particularly that he understood that he was going to go into people, into Gentile people, into groups of people who didn't even know who Jesus was, who had never heard of Jesus. He was going to be saying to complete strangers, let me tell you about someone you don't know, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament of the Jews, which you don't have, which you don't read, which you don't study. I'm still going to tell you about Jesus. And so his calling was to I've said this before, evangelize, to, which simply means to tell the euangelion, to tell the good news, to tell the evangel to people who had not heard it. And Paul saw that as the primary emphasis in his ministry, to preach the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And Remember earlier I talked about Apollos probably being a good orator, probably being a good speaker as opposed to Paul. Well, Paul now says, I did not come in cleverness of speech. I have said many, many times, here I go saying it again, but if I can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. If I talk you into it with my clever words and my nice oration or my good jokes, I don't know when the good jokes are going to happen. But if my speaking style convinces you and that's what did it for you, then somebody else can come along equally clever and talk you out of it. But if it is God who has convinced you, if it is God who has placed his spirit in you and changed your heart and your mind, then nobody can talk you out of it. No matter what you do, you won't be able to escape the reality of Christ and his salvation and his determination to get you. You might buck against it, like Paul did. When Jesus spoke to him on the Damascus Road, he said to him, Paul, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul was kicking against it. I will not be converted. I'm not going to follow this Christ. I'm busy persecuting the church. I'm busy killing Christians. And Jesus said, it's hard for you to keep this up. And from that point forward, Paul could not escape the reality of Christ. And I know that he could not escape it because I've never, I've never had anybody beat me with 39 lashes. Ever. I've never taken a lash. Okay, I have to correct that slightly. My dad used to knock me around. <laughs> in a good way, in a positive way. No sparing the rod with that guy. No spoiling the child with that guy. But I've never taken a lash for Christianity. Five times Paul was beaten like that. And he was shipwrecked and a day and night in the deep and he was in prison and he was starving. All of that he did for the sake of the gospel. He ultimately, I said it earlier, according to best tradition, he had his head lopped off under Nero. 
And never once do you ever find anybody in human history ever claiming that Paul ever recanted. Not once. At risk of skin, at risk of life, he suffered greatly. He apparently suffered a kind of blindness, which is why he used secretaries, amanuensis. He he suffered a great deal of disease and hardship in his life, and yet never once did he say, it's not worth it. Instead, he said, it's better to leave here and be with the Lord. It's a strait betwixt the two. There's some good King James language. He said, I'm in a strait betwixt the two. I know it's better to leave and be with Jesus, but it's better for you if I stay. And I don't know which one I want. I don't know which one I'll do. This life had become so hard for him, so torturous for him, so difficult for him, that he longed for death as a release because he was convinced that his Savior had promised him a kind of heavenly destiny that he couldn't begin to imagine. So when we come across hardships in life, when we come across difficulties, remember what the writer of Hebrews said, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But Jesus did. I know that Paul could say with a straight face, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, because he knew that the one thing he was preaching with was power. He had the power of God behind him. He had the power of Christ at his disposal or at very least at his help, at his assistance. And so he could speak with halting words. He could write powerful letters, but he could be beaten and diminutive in his form, in his figure, and he could have a a speech that was kind of halting and difficult to listen to, and he didn't have cleverness of speech, and he didn't have Apollos gift of preaching in such a way that people would hear his oratory. He came to them in a non-cleverness, in a simplicity, and he states now that the simplicity of his message was that the cross of Christ should not be made void. He centered everything on the cross of Christ. He centered everything at Calvary. Everything on the death of Christ. That was the very center of his whole gospel. He wrote magnificent letters. He wrote deep and wonderful theology. He wrote things that we wouldn't know otherwise. He was given revelations to write. Not the book of revelations. He was given mysteries that he wrote about. He was given insight that no other man had and he wrote about it. But he didn't take that as, oh, look at me, I'm important. Instead, he said, all these horrific things that have fallen out in my life are payment for how grand the visions have been that have been given to me. The revelation that was given to me is so big that to keep me from being puffed up, God had to continually beat me down. He didn't say, look at me, first church of Paul, open a university, I need a satellite dish. Instead, he said, my humility is because God has kept me humble. He talked about his thorn in the flesh. He three times went to God and asked him to remove that thorn in the flesh. And this is Paul, who had done miracles of healing, who had seen the power of God healing other individuals. And he goes to that God and says, what about me? Heal me. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. So that's what Paul came to. When I'm weak, then is Christ strong? When people aren't looking at me, when people aren't emphasizing me, they have to emphasize the Christ that is in me. And and that was the emphasis that Paul put on it. So he talked about the cross, the simplicity of the cross, and he did not want that event. He did not want Christ's death and his blood flowing on our behalf. He did not want that to ever be subjected or subjugated by anything else. It had to have primacy. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us 
who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about what he just did. He just divided all of humanity into two camps. Those that are being saved and those that are perishing. And to those that are perishing, to those who God has decided are not going to be saved, to those who are perishing, when they hear about the cross of Christ, it's foolishness, it's silliness, it's ridiculous, it's a fable, it's a made-up thing, it's a crutch that Christians use. One thing that the perishing cannot do is embrace the reality of the cross of Christ. So he talks about it, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, to those who are in the process of being saved, to those of us who are on the pathway toward our ultimate goal of salvation and being in God's presence, when we hear about the cross, it's good news. When we hear about the cross and about our sins being paid for and about Christ's blood flowing on our behalf and about God accepting that sacrifice because of our sin, we're happy. We celebrate that fact. It becomes the core and center of our whole theology, of our whole preachment. Christ did it all. And it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about him. For the word of the cross is to those who were perishing foolishness. But to us who were being saved, it is the power of God. And then Paul does something very interesting. He quotes from Isaiah. In order to show that back in Isaiah 29, Isaiah was already predicting this. It didn't fall out this way, the perishing and the saved. It didn't fall out this way just since Christ died. It goes all the way back to Isaiah. He declared it. He pointed out that there were going to be people who were going to believe and people who weren't going to believe. Who has believed our report? I mean, that's the question. Who in humanity has actually accepted the preachment of the gospel? And so he quotes from Isaiah, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Think about what that means. You have to go back to how God views himself. You have to go back to what God says about himself. Again, in Isaiah. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So are my ways higher than your ways. There's no human being who has ever figured out the mind of God or the thoughts, the plans, the intentions of God. And because that's the case, because, as Paul is going to say in a moment, the foolishness of God is smarter than the smartest man. And so Isaiah says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I don't know how many of you spend your life on the internet. I, I dabble in the internet now and again, and we have a large internet following. And so I'm on our website and I'm on Facebook and I've kind of limited the news feeds that I have anymore because so many of them are so tilted and biased. But on the internet, there are a great many people who consider themselves quite clever, quite wise. And many of them are attacking Christianity right and left. And they think that because their silly little pea brains have made an argument that they can't figure out that they have somehow confounded God Almighty. I saw an interview recently with an atheist. He was asked, if God exists, what will you say to him when you see him? Now this presupposes that God Almighty would exist and when the atheist died that he would somehow be able to charge into the presence of God and say, let me tell you a few things. I know you want to hear from me. I never believed in you. I never humbled myself before you, but I'm sure you're interested in my superior opinion. And this is what the atheist said. He said, I would have to say to God, how dare you? 
all this trouble in the world, all this sickness and disease, all these wars, all these children dying. How dare you, a supposedly good God, allow this to happen? Now that also presupposes that God is going to sit still long enough to let some unbelieving atheist full of pomposity and ego say, I don't like the way you do things. God doesn't care. He doesn't care if you agree or disagree with him. He's doing what he's decided to do. That's what David wrote in the Psalms. You'll say, where is your God? His answer is, he's in the heavens doing whatever seems good to him. That's where God is. And so God is going to destroy the cleverness of the clever. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And all those people in their egocentric wisdom who think they've got life figured out and that there is no God and that there is... Just nothing. Oh, oh, by the way, let me add this. This is very current events, and usually I don't do current events during our sermons so that they resonate for years to come, but we saw a shooting of several policemen in Dallas this week, a horrific event. I was reading this morning about the shooter, and while he was in Afghanistan, he was dismissed from the army and I won't even tell you why, but let's just say it had to do with strange sexual things. And they said that when he returned home, he said, I no longer believe in God. You would have to not believe in God to do what he did. Five people dead, five police, 11 more injured. He said, I hate white people, I hate white police, and he shot them down because he didn't believe in God. So he had no conscience of any kind of afterlife, of any kind of judgment. He believed that when you die, you go into the nothingness. What a surprise he's in for. Because he thinks he's so wise and so clever, and God's going to destroy his cleverness. Can you imagine standing in front of God and saying, I didn't believe in you. Here you are. I don't even think you'll get to say that. I think you'll have a hard time lifting your face out of the dirt. I think you're going to be down in front of him, and he's going to dismiss you with an I never knew you. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is why Paul didn't come with enticing words. This is why Paul didn't appeal to their intellect or their cleverness. He showed them the power of God. And that was his argument. The cross happened, the blood flowed, the resurrection happened, and the power of the Spirit of God is alive and well. And you're going to witness that power. The church at Corinth did witness it with the way that they abused the spiritual gifts. They knew the power of God. And so Paul's going to center on that and say it's the power of God that testifies to what I'm saying. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. I read a very interesting commentary this week on that particular verse that said that when Paul says, where is the wise man, he's speaking generally. Jew or Gentile, where can you find a wise man? But then he says, where is the scribe? That's a very Jewish reference. Where is the scribe, the one who copies and keeps our our laws, our rules, Whereas the scribes, they were considered very intelligent because they were always copying the word of God and the rules, the laws, the the chronicles of the kings. Where's the one who's so clever that he can write and so he can keep up with what's going on among mankind? And then he says, but where is the debater of this age? Now, this is interesting. Okay, you homeschool kids. How many of you have ever studied Greek debate? 
Anybody? Hellenistic debate? Okay, the Hellenists, the Greeks, were very into the perfect man. That's why Michelangelo's David exists. It's trying to indicate the perfect man. Perfect in sports, perfect in health, perfect in wisdom. And the Greeks were very big on wisdom, which is why so much Greek philosophy is still with us to this day. And in order to argue in a Greek debate, one of the rules that I really, really like, and I wish more internet debaters would, would do this, you could not answer your opponent until you could state your opponent's case to the level that it satisfied your opponent. In other words, you proved you knew what he was saying before you could answer him. These days, when people get into arguments on comment sections and little com boxes on YouTube, they argue right past each other. They don't even listen to what the other one's saying. I've got my point, and I'm going to make my point, and whatever you say is wrong, and I'm rubber, and you're glue, and whatever you says bounces off me and sticks on you. I mean, that's the level of argumentation going on. There's a whole lot of nanny-nanny boo-boo going on out there. There's very little actual intellectual paying attention to what the other person says and then replying to what the other person has said. But we get that, that kind of debating, that level of debating from the Greeks, from the Hellenistic culture. And so when Paul says, where is the scribe, he's talking about the Jewish intelligentsia. And when he says, where is the debater of this age, he's talking about the Greek intelligentsia. And then he says, all of them. Collectively, Jew or Gentile, God has made them foolish because it's the wisdom of this world. And after this world, if you think you're pretty smart, if you think you're pretty clever, pretty intellectual, then God is going to make your intellectual abilities nothing more than folly before him. Because there's not a man or woman alive who knows what's going on with God. And when you get face-to-face with the maker of everything, I think everybody's going to be astounded by it. In fact, Paul's going to say that later in this letter. Man has not conceived of, has not thought up these glories, these plans, these determinations, these eternalities that God has planned for the people who belong to him, who love him. People who have been on the planet for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. They think, now in my 40 years, I've pretty much figured out all of mankind and all of human history, and I've even got my attitude toward heavenly things or the lack of heavenly things. I've got that all down. In a mere 40 years, I have figured out the entirety of the cosmos. I know exactly what to expect when I die, and I know that heaven and hell is not real, and all that stuff about a God who made everything. I don't believe any of that. What boastfulness. And so God is going to make that wisdom foolishness. Now, Paul is saying that on on purpose because he's about to say, I preach Christ, which the world thinks is foolish. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It seems unbelievable to many people, and I've dealt with these folks a number of times. I have said to them, my whole hope, my whole confidence towards eternity is based in Jesus Christ. And they have said to me, that's stupid. The fact that you are trusting eternity, if it even exists, to a separate person, to another individual who lived 2,000 years ago, and that that has affected your life and how you live and how you behave and your attitude towards the world. I mean, 
That's an ancient book. That's 2,000 years ago that book was written. Why would you adjust your whole life based on what was written in such an old book? And they think of themselves as so enlightened, as so clever, as so grown up because of that. And in dealing with people like that who think that it's, it's silly, it's stupid, it's foolish, they can't understand why I would trust my entire eternity to this book and who it talks about. That just seems so foolish to them. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that argument's coming. Paul knows the world will consider Christianity foolish. So what the atheist doesn't understand, what the cynic doesn't understand, is that even their lack of belief confirms what the Bible says about them. The Bible's so right, the Bible's so true, that it even tells us what the unbeliever's going to be like. And he's like that. What if all the unbelievers in the world, all the agnostics in the world, across the board, what if they all just became neutral? What if they all just kind of didn't care? I've talked about the fact that that is the inner dialogue that an atheist has to have with himself. That's the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, the cognitive dissonance. Thank you, dear. That's the cognitive dissonance of the atheistic attitude is that it says, God doesn't exist and I hate him. Wait a minute, you can't hate someone who doesn't exist. What if they were just neutral? What if they said, God doesn't exist, so it doesn't matter to me. I'm going on with my life. What, what if they just said, you Christians, go ahead and be Christians, and we're going to be atheists, and we're just going to go on with life? It'd be incredible. It'd be so much easier. Why do they hate God so much? Why do they hate Christians? Why do they have this unnatural disdain for the things that we believe? Because the Bible said they would. Because God foreordained that that's how they would be. And by being that, they're confirming that the God of the Bible knows what's coming. So again, I'm forced to trust the Bible when I hear from the atheists. For since in the wisdom of God, okay, God, in his wisdom, in doing whatever he pleased, whatever he's decided to do, according to his own plan and eternal will, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. So it's the plan of God. It's the wisdom of God to make sure that earthly wisdom will not ever discover him. That's his plan. That's what God decided to do in his eternal wisdom. To make sure that human beings cannot figure him out according to their own earthly wisdom. And we have the evidence of that. We have the proof of that. Not everybody in this room has always believed in Jesus. I know many of you. You've told me your stories. You've told me your background. I know that there were people in here who were hardcore against Christianity. And then one day, something changed. One day, your heart was enlightened, and suddenly you were drawn to the things of God. And you sit here today on a very hot Sunday morning listening to an old, bald, scar-bellied preacher talk about Jesus. Something changed. And it wasn't the world's wisdom. It wasn't somebody cleverly talking you into it. In fact, when somebody would cleverly try to talk you into it, you would cleverly argue against it. The change took place because God changed you from within. And you can't deny that the worldly wisdom cannot do what the wisdom of God can do. So he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, since that was the case, God was well pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. So God determined the end, the salvation of his people. 
God determined the end, that all his people were going to be gathered to him, that all his people were going to be given to his son, and that all of them, not a one is missing, are going to stand in front of him. But he also determined the means to get that done. He knows what the end's going to be. Now he's got to set about the work of getting it there, getting it done. And so he determined what the means was going to be. And the means was the preaching of the gospel, which the world thinks is foolishness. And that's the reason that Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching. I don't want to offend anybody, especially Jeff. But he'll probably agree with me on this. There is a whole charismatic movement that does things like laughing hysterically, barking like dogs, and having the fillings in their teeth turn to gold. There's this whole holy laughter movement, and then there's this whole drunk in the spirit movement. Like when the Holy Spirit comes to you as if the Holy Spirit has to come to you, like he's away from you, he's somewhere else, he's down the street, He's in a different city, but then he eventually comes to you. And so when the spirit comes on these people, they supposedly laugh and carry on like drunkards. And they call it being drunk in the spirit. And they laugh hysterically and bark like dogs and carry on. Which I think is just crazy silliness because I don't think the Holy Spirit acts like that. I don't think the Spirit of God would carry on like a drunk man. I think the Spirit of God is infinitely intelligent and would raise the level of the room, wouldn't draw the level of the room down. But the reason that they do that, the way that they justify that behavior, is that they say, oh, this is just the foolishness of preaching. Because the way they read that verse is, Preaching and foolishness go together, and when we're laughing and drunk and crazy and all that, we're just being fools for Jesus, because we're just foolish, because Paul said, the foolishness of preaching, and therefore we're being foolish. Am I telling the truth? Yeah. Okay, Jeff agreed with me on that one. Because that's the way that people misunderstand and mishandle this particular verse. Paul did not say that preaching was foolish. Paul said the world thinks preaching Christ is foolish, and it's by that foolishness that people are being saved. So he's using the word foolish there to agree that the world thinks it's foolish. But then he incorporates that word to say that's the very method, that's the very means by which God is saving people. For since, we're nearly done here. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. That's what they did all the way through Jesus' ministry. The Jews were constantly asking for a sign. Show us something. Do something from heaven. Call down lightning from folks. Walk across a lake. Do something. Show off. And he said, a wicked and an adulterous generation requires a sign to believe, and there will be no sign given it save the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What did Jesus do? He took it back to Calvary. This is the sign. This is the one thing you're going to get. I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. And that's all the sign you need. So Paul wrote, for indeed the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks search for wisdom. Entice me. Tell me something clever. How many times have you heard online or even in discussions with other folks, how many times have you heard, prove it? Prove your God. Prove that Christian thing. Be clever. Be wise. Show me. Give me evidence. Talk me into it. Prove it. Well, that's the wisdom of this world. So Paul would say, for indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach 
Christ crucified. He brought it back to Calvary again. We preach Christ crucified. And here's the reaction that he gets. The group that's looking for a sign, to them, Christ crucified is a stumbling block. Why? Because they have the scripture. They have the Old Testament. They have the predictions of Messiah to come. And when Messiah's coming, he's supposed to come and throw off the yoke of Rome and set up the kingdom. He's supposed to come and rule and reign from Jerusalem and all the nations are going to flow to it. That's what the prophets have said about Christ. And they expected that when he came and he was identified, he would do that. And what did he do? He came, he was identified, he died. And they didn't get that. That's not the way Messiah is supposed to work. And then not only did he die, he's gone. His body's gone out of the tomb and we can't find him anywhere. We're going to just say that the disciples stole the body. We're just going to start some kind of rumors to explain the reality. But one thing we're not going to say is he's resurrected. The death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ to the Jewish mind is a stumbling block. They just can't get past that. That's not what Messiah was supposed to do, but it is everything that the prophets said he would do. Which is why when he saw his two disciples on the Emmaus Road, that's why he opened up the scriptures to them, which would be the Old Testament, and said to them, shouldn't Christ have died? Shouldn't he have suffered first and then entered into his glory? Isn't this exactly what the prophets said about me? And then we read that starting at Moses and the law, that he showed them all the scripture concerning himself to prove that what he actually did is what the scripture actually predicted about him. But all of that was a stumbling block to the Jews. So we preach Christ crucified to the Jew. It's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, who are always searching for wisdom, it's foolishness. It's just silliness. But to those who are called, but to those who God chose before the foundation of the earth, both of the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the wisdom of this world is going to be argumentative. The wisdom of this world is going to be denying the things of God. But to those who are called, to those who actually have the call of God on them, to those who have been chosen and elected, to those people when we hear about Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, to us, both Jew and Greek, we recognize that that's the very power of God at work. We recognize that that's the great eternal plan of God. We see that that's the determination of God to use that particular means in order to save his people eternally. And we embrace it completely. The world doesn't know. The world doesn't know much. The world doesn't know anything about God or Christ or his plan. But every once in a while... You preach the gospel. Every once in a while, you tell the good news. Every once in a while, you say to somebody, the answer is Christ, and you point them to Christ. You try to take yourself out of the equation and make it all about Christ. And every once in a while, people go, I get it. And, And enlightenment hits them because the means of bringing people to salvation is the preaching of the gospel, telling people the good news, telling folks that this is what Jesus did. And every once in a while, something happens that is far beyond human understanding, far beyond human wisdom, far beyond signs and wonders. People actually embrace the gospel. God opened their heart. God opened their heart. God did the thing that only God can do. God did the thing that no human wisdom can do. So the next time that you're online or in person or at the grocery store and you're arguing, maybe that's just me, and you're arguing with an atheist, you're having a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe and they just don't believe and they argue vociferously and they say terrible things about the God you love, just recognize that the Bible said they were going to be that way. They're among the people who are perishing. And on their way between here and perishing, 
they're going to decry the things of God. But that should give you confidence. That should help you prove that everything we believe here is true about God's election and God's determination and God choosing people before the foundation of the world. There is the elect group. There is the called, and they're out there, and they need to hear the gospel. And that's why we do what we do. Because once in a while, they become believers. And that's what we're looking for. Just out here looking for sheep. It's all we're doing. So you got all that? I feel good about uh, knowing that even Paul had to deal with naysayers and critics. And man, he had it much harder than I've ever had it. Christ had no. He was just a little man as far as the earth knew. Yeah, exactly right. And now he got Paul's job is to raise him to a God. You know what? You've just said something very important. So I'm going to elucidate on it for just a moment. You just said he was just a little man. He, he was. He was just a man telling a story. Very humble man. Very humble man. And to the world, to the onlooking, unbelieving world, he was that. He was just a man telling a story. But to those who were foreordained to come be in God's presence, what he said, the word preached, that the world thought was foolishness, that was the power unto salvation. And that's really remarkable. And that's why we do what we do. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.